right, good afternoon everybody and welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And I am so delighted to welcome you uh, to today's conversation in our Working in America series. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we do a, lot, a variety of work to advance ideas that will help low and moderate income Americans connect to economic opportunity and thrive in a changing economy. And in the Working in America series, in particular, we look at a variety of issues that affect the shape of opportunity that working Americans face and consider ideas that could make things better for working people. Uh, we're extremely grateful to the Ford Foundation, to the Prudential Foundation, the Cerdner Foundation, and the Walmart Foundation for their support of the Working in America series. And in today's conversation, as you've seen, we're going to talk taxes and what tax reform could mean for low and moderate income workers in the United States. Now, if you think about taxes, you probably try not to, but if you think about taxes, you one of the things you think about is the complexity of the American tax system. Um, and this is not surprising because we've come to rely on the tax code to do a lot of policy making and to incentivize a variety of economic behavior. So when we think about low-income workers in particular, probably one of the first things we think of is the earned income tax credit. Um, in 2015, uh, roughly 27 million workers earned the earned income tax credit. So that came to nearly one in five working people, right? So this is, so the tax system is a, is a big deal for working, working people. But the tax code offers a variety of other incentives. We offered tax preferred saving vehicles for college, for retirement. Uh, we offer home mortgage deduction to encourage home ownership. There are incentives to businesses and investors to encourage job creation. Um, there's preferential treatment for capital gains. Uh, there's targeted tax credits. So you have like the work opportunity tax credit to uh, encourage employers to hire veterans or other groups that are seen as, as facing barriers to employment. So in short, we do quite a lot of economic policy making through the tax code. Um, so as the talk of tax reform comes along, it's important to think about the tax system, not just sort of for the economy broadly, but in particular, how it affects working people in the United States. So today we go super wonk and talk taxes. So I just have a couple of things to say before we get started. Um, uh, first of all, please do silence your phones. Um, we're very thrilled to be uh, live streaming as well as recording. Uh, we're very glad to have C-SPAN here today. So please do silence your phone, but please do tweet. Our hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, I also uh, just, let's see if I need to know. I don't need to do any of those things. I just want to now introduce our panelists. Um, so I am thrilled to uh, introduce the panelists, and I will uh, start from my far left and work this way for, uh, for your far right. Um, uh, we have Frank Clementi, Executive Director of Americans for Tax Fairness. Uh, next to Frank, we have Maria Avey, uh, Sarasota Area President at United Way Suncoast Florida. Uh, next to Maria, we have Alex Brill, Research Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am delighted to have uh, right next to me, Jean Zahadi, senior writer for CNNMoney.com, who is going to be our moderator for today's conversation. So Jean, thank you so much, and I turn it over to you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, just a little bit of table setting on tax reform for low and middle income workers. Right now, what we're hearing uh, from politicians is a lot about business tax reform. Um, you have a lot of support among Republicans. You have a lot of support even among business-friendly Democrats who, who really think that the business side of the tax code needs a lot of reform more urgently even than the individual side. 
there also is uh, a sense, it, it, in fact, it, it, to me, as I cover this, it sounds more like lip service to how will this affect the middle class, how will it affect financially strapped workers. Um, it's going to be very hard for them to just do business tax reform without addressing the larger population. Um, so I'm glad to be doing this panel because I think we're going to be talking about issues that should be discussed in the context of overhauling the code that, that is not currently being discussed. Um, it, it seems to me that there are four ways that tax reform can affect low and middle income workers, positively or negatively. Um, you could talk about giving them new or expanded tax breaks that already exist. But the underside to that is if other changes that are proposed undercut the value of those new or expanded breaks, that may or may not change their tax liability at all. Um, another way is through economic growth. Republicans are making the case that if you lower business tax rates and you reduce their tax, uh, sorry, lower their business tax rates and then lower their breaks, that that will encourage investment, investment will create jobs, jobs will also, more jobs and higher wages. So. Hopefully that would work. If it doesn't work, we've just blown through the deficit. Um, a third way is to, um, and Frank, you'll speak to this point, I think, is there's a lot of people think, well, you should raise the rates on high-income individuals, make the tax code less beneficial to them, and, and, and raise more revenue to support programs that, that help low- and middle-income families. There's sort of an underside to all of those arguments. Um, right now, we have a pretty progressive federal income tax code. 40% of filers end up owing nothing in federal income taxes. Um, so it's unclear if some of the proposed changes would even help them at all because their, their tax bill is zero to begin with. Um, and as I said, if economic growth doesn't work out, all we've done is reduce the amount of revenue we have available to us. Um, so. I'm going to turn it over to these guys who are bring excellent perspectives, all of them, very different perspectives, to, to lay out what they think is working today about the tax code for low and middle income workers and what's not, and then we'll go from there. And then afterwards, we'll, we'll toss to you guys for your questions. So Alex, go ahead. What's, what's working today and what's not for low and middle income workers? Thank you. Thanks yeah. for having me here today. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I note when I uh, think about the t federal income tax with respect to low and moderate income workers is the disparity um, to which the tax code affects different people within that population differently. Um, that's always true across the income spectrum, but it's particularly true among low and, income or, uh, low and middle income uh, families and households. Uh, for example, as was mentioned, the earned income tax rate, one of the largest uh, welfare programs, I think the largest welfare program at the federal level, um, is a very effective uh, program, uh, helps raise uh, people out of poverty, encourages work and labor market participation. Um, but not everyone who is lower middle income um, is eligible for that program. Um, there's both people who are um, eligible and not getting the benefit. Um, there's some amount of improper payments in that program. But it's also just a function of family size and family composition. And so for um, within the structure, there are a lot of people who are ineligible for that program. Um, so the amount of taxes that are paid, um, either when, when you ask, when you say taxes, meaning federal income taxes or all federal taxes, which include payroll and federal excise taxes, um, um, varies widely. Um, and so that inconsistency creates complexity, creates uncertainty for taxpayers. A taxpayer may um, have one tax liability one year and a very different tax liability another year, um, which makes it difficult to plan, difficult to prepare for their taxes. Um, and, and all of those things um, are inefficiencies, in my view, in the system. Um, when we think about what we could do to this, to the tax code, 
Um, uh, and when we talk about tax reform in Washington, it, that discussion is about federal income tax, both federal individual income tax and federal corporate income tax. We're not having a conversation. We could, but just the reality is we're not having a conversation in Washington about uh, about changes to the payroll tax system. Um, someone could introduce that that topic, um, and we're not having a conversation about changes uh, to federal excise taxes. And of course, Washington's not having a conversation about how the states uh, should change their tax systems. Um, so. For the individual low and moderate income household, um, they're facing all sorts of taxes, um, but the tax reform debate is, is primarily related um, to income tax. And I'll just say two specific things about um, how I think about how, they, uh, how those two taxes affect workers. Um, with respect to the individual income tax, um, I think about tax policy in two ways. One is the average and the other is the marginal. And so on average, what are people paying um, what is their tax liability? And for people who are low and moderate income, um, on average, their federal income tax liability, not their total tax liability, their federal income tax liability is negative. Um, policymakers could pursue strategies to make it more negative, but it is negative already. Um, we are using that tax system to redistribute income um, to low and moderate income households, generally speaking, um, not necessarily every household. Um, the other way I think about taxes is on the margin. Um, individual taxes on the margin. What happens when they earn one more dollar? And here we see, again, wide disparity across the, uh, among uh, individuals who are low and moderate income. Um, on, on average, we see taxpayers facing marginal rate in, uh, of 20% on the federal level and higher when we start to bring in the effects of other programs. Um, and that can create, um, in some cases, disincentives for labor market <coughs> participation or for additional hours of work. The other way I think about the tax code um, with respect to these, uh, these individuals is the effect of, t of taxes, of in indirect taxes, taxes that they don't pay that might affect um, their well-being or their livelihood. And here there's an emerging economic literature on the corporate income tax um, that finds that corporate taxes that are paid have an impact, an adverse impact on the wages that workers earn. And one of the reasons I think that policymakers are so motivated um, to pursue business tax reform, corporate tax reform, is out of an understanding that those taxes will affect mm -hmm. um, the, the wages of workers across the income spectrum. Okay. I did mean to mention the other way that low and middle income workers could be helped by tax reform is simplification. I think Maria will, will, will spec that out for you. It's, it's sort of stunning, some of the things you told me before this meeting. So, sure. Uh, yeah. Ways at you know, United Way Suncoast that we're helping families is with the free tax preparation, VITA. We, uh, we believe that the VITA program really provides families the mechanisms to, because the tax code is so complicated, that families sometimes struggle that they don't understand their tax returns. The volunteers are trained individuals that have to go through an IRS certification to be able to help the families with their tax returns. And a lot of times folks will say, well, uh, is it just that they're not paying a fee to have their tax returns prepared? And, you know, in... Um, at our United Way, we, um, we filled out around 19,000 returns for families that brought $25 million back in tax credit for our families. If uh, the preparers, the tax preparers uh, charge, let's say $200 for those individuals to have their tax returns prepared, that we saved the families of the 19,000 returns around $3.8 million. And we have to think about that because one of the reasons that VITA is so important is that we're not only helping the individuals who are filling out a tax return, 
We're also helping them understand their tax return. We're, we're talking to them about how to build assets, how to save, you know, what should you do with your tax return? Because if you think about it, families in Florida, 44% of the families that live in Florida just make enough for the base, basic um, expenses for childcare, rent, and just having $400 in their savings account could help that one individual make it to work because maybe their car breaks down. So we have to think it's beyond saving them on the $400 filing fee that they may be charged, but we're, we're providing assistance and advice on how to spend the refund that you're receiving, but we also um, show them, teach them, this is what your tax return, this is what you're paying for, a better understanding because I think the confusion and why we want tax reform to be simplified is so it's easier for families to understand. You know, and we're asked a lot of times, well, if it's simplified, do we still need VITA? <laughs> yes, we still need VITA because many families need to have a place to go to to understand what their taxes are going to be. Uh, we have many families up that their average wage that come, the families that come to a VITA site make $22,000 a year. And a lot of the families, they may not have a computer at home, and we currently have MyFreeTax.com um, through the IRS that they can prepare their tax return, but <coughs> families like to come and talk to a tax preparer, just like all of us have the opportunity to go to our tax accountant and get advice and get financial advice. Our low-wage um, workers, they want to have those same opportunities. So we believe that the VITA program is a very important program that we currently have and we provide to low-income workers. Thank you, Frank. Hi, uh, happy to be here. I'm going to take probably a little bit more of a, a macro approach to the uh, to the issue because um, we're we're actually in that kind of an environment where we're right. discussing what's uh, tax reform going to look like uh, in Congress. Uh, President Trump has a proposal. Uh, the House Republicans have had a proposal, uh, and the way we look at it, Americans for Tax Fairness which is an organization of about 400 national and state organizations, we're working uh, for a, what we call a fair tax system. Uh, we believe that the wealthy and uh, big wealthy corporations ought to be paying quite a bit more in taxes than they are paying now. Uh, we're not asking the middle class to pay anymore. What we want to do is basically uh, raise a lot more revenue so that we can make the kinds of investments that we think are critical for an economy, to create an economy that's going to work for all Americans. Right now we think the economy is not working for everybody. There's a great deal of inequality in, in, our, in our country. Uh, the vast majority of the wealth of the country is controlled, owned by the top 1%. Uh, very little is owned by folks at the bottom. And we need to change that dynamic. And part of it is to grow the economy and to grow the pie. We think the best way to grow the economy and grow the pie is, for, is to uh, make investments. Uh, we actually think that uh, uh, we, are, we have what we call a revenue gap in this country. Uh, I'll, I'll use a little bit of math. It's, uh, it's not the easiest thing to understand, but uh, revenue is about 18% of, federal revenue is about 18% of our economy right now. Uh, it's 
but our spending is at 21.5%. So that difference between 21.5% and 18%, that's, what's, uh, that's the deficit. And that's what I call the revenue gap. That revenue gap is going to go up to 23.5% versus 18%. Revenue is going to stay flat, but the gap's going to go. The spending is going to go up to 23.5%. Why is it going up there? It's going up there because folks are retiring. We have a big baby boom generation that's going, and we have a choice. We could cut things, uh, cut retirement security, cut Medicare, cut Social Security in order to close that revenue gap, or we can raise more revenue. And I believe that you asked that question of the public, do they want to make more revenue to ensure security, to ensure, ensure retirement security, to ensure that uh, we can afford to put our kids in college, to rebuild our roads and bridges. We all recognize what a, what a, a, a critical need there is to, to rebuild our infrastructure, to do new medical research. All of these things cannot happen now unless we raise uh, significantly more revenue. And the only place to get that revenue is from those who are benefiting from the economy currently. If I could just give one very concrete example, the Affordable Care Act is, is an example of what I'm talking about. That's uh, the legislation that President Obama got passed that provided health insurance to 20 million people. Um, that was paid for by taxing uh, the, the richest 2% of Americans, uh, putting an investment tax on them, a modest investment tax, and by adding a 0.9% to their Medicare tax. Now we're talking folks who make $250,000 and above, the top 2%. Also, insurance companies and drug companies were asked to pay a little bit more because they were gonna get a lot more business. Those taxes is what enabled us to provide healthcare coverage to 20 million Americans. And the problem right now is under the Trump care legislation, they want to wipe out those taxes, which is why we will, 20 million people will lose their health insurance. So that's how we advocate using the tax system to create more opportunity for everybody. If I can play devil's advocate to Alex and Frank, both of them seem to agree that corporate taxes have a big impact on low middle income families, but for very different reasons. Um, Frank, you believe that higher taxes for corporations provides more money, the federal government can spend it on low and middle income workers. Alex, you believe if you lower corporate rates, corporations will create more jobs, more investment, pay higher wages. Both of those things sound completely reasonable, except as a, as a cynic now, because I've covered this for so long, I, I firmly don't think my company is going to give me higher wages if their tax rates are cut. I just, I'm dubious. I also don't think if you raise corporate taxes that companies will stay in the country, <laughs> right? That's the whole point of corporate taxes. So you two can just go right at it. You can tell us <laughs> how you can come together on this point and make my life a little bit easier because I do not understand how the two of you will, will come together on this. Well, let's start with uh, what are corporations paying now? Uh, there's the top line rate, which is 35%. Uh, that's called the, uh, the top tax rate on corporations. Uh, then there's lots of studies that have said that tax rate is substantially less than that. Sure. Uh, and now we're talking federal taxes. We're not talking the entire state and local and all that. We're just talking federal taxes. Uh, the Government Accountability Office, uh, which is a nonpartisan entity, they looked at the, uh, for five years, 2008 to 2012, they looked at uh, profitable U.S. corporations. You don't want to look at unprofitable because they don't pay any taxes, but the profitable corporations, they said they're paying a 14% tax rate, so that's more than half less half under what the effective tax rate is. 
there's lots of studies uh, that have shown uh, that uh, essentially what Alex, you're talking really about trickle down, that if you give more profits to corporations, uh, they will then spend the money uh, to invest and that will create more jobs and grow the economy. Uh, first of all, uh, most uh, people, most academics don't believe, the, the studies don't show that that trickle down actually works. We went through that, we've gone through that before. Uh, bang for the buck, you get a lot more jobs created if you invest in infrastructure, three times the, as much jobs in infrastructure as you do with corporate tax breaks. That's a CBO study and it's a Mark Zandi study. Uh, we don't have, corporations are very flush with profits right now. Their profits are higher than they've ever been. <coughs> Uh, and yet, we don't see this massive amount of investment going on. Uh, why? Because frankly, the demand's not there. What drives investment is less, much less about tax cuts. It's much more about consumer demand and whether people, are, whether people have the money in their pockets to drive things. Remember, that 70% of our spending in the country is consumers buying things. And so if wages are depressed, if too many people are, don't have work, uh, that's not going to drive the economy. So businesses aren't going to invest in that case. So we have very high profits for corporations right now. Their taxes are at the lowest that they've been for decades uh, as a share of the, the economy. So there's not, the companies are not overtaxed. I maintain they're undertaxed. After you. Sure. Yeah. So I agree uh, that, uh, that the amount of taxes paid is certainly, for U.S. corporations, is certainly less uh, than the tax rate, the 35% rate. Um, that's, that's definitely the case. And that's also the case not even as Frank noted, not just because of firms that are in lost positions. Um, that has to do with the, the base of the tax system, not in, as much as anything. Um, large, large share of the federal tax is, that are paid are paid by U.S. multinationals, and a lot of their earnings um, accrue uh, abroad. And so the way our tax system works is that the taxes are due when that income is either earned in the United States or returned to the United States. And firms um, are investing in lots of what they might call tax strategies or tax planning strategies um, to minimize or avoid uh, the federal tax liability. Um, and for those reasons, their, their actual tax liabilities are certainly far lower, uh, just as Frank described. Um, GAO and others have, have, numerous other people have made that point. Um, the question uh, is not one that I would characterize as, uh, make, I'm not, uh, as trickle down. The question in my mind is what's the incidence of the tax? And so we know um, in public finance that you can ask the question, who writes the check? Who sends the money to the IRS? And then you can also ask the question, uh, who bears the burden? And so if you take a tax that, you know, that we know well, um, one that's easy to relate to, let's say the cigarette tax, um, smokers don't write a check to the IRS when they buy a pack of cigarettes, right? It's the tobacco manufacturers that pay that tax. But we know that the consequence of the cigarette tax is that cigarettes prices are higher, and that's by design, and, and for good reason. Um, when we think about things like income taxes, it's more difficult to try to trace through. Um, we know who writes the check, um, the corporations write the check, but it's more difficult to trace through to find out who bears the burden. And for a long time, the assumption in the public finance literature was that the burden was borne by the owners of the corporations, that the tax fell on, on capital. Um, in theory, it could fall in any one of a number of places or in combination. So it could fall on workers, 
uh, in, low, in terms of lower wages. It could fall on um, the owners of the firms in terms of uh, lower stock prices, or it could uh, pass through into higher prices uh, for consumers. Um, and for a long time, the assumption um, by organizations like the Congressional Budget Office and others was that a large share of that, um, not entirely, but a large share of that was borne um, uh, by the owners of, of capital, by the shareholders of those firms. The simple fact is that we've got new evidence over the last few years, um, a half dozen or so um, empirical ar uh, research articles that have started to question that finding. Um, and it's not a theoretical argument, it's really an empirical question. Theoretically, it could fall anywhere. Um, empirically, what we, what we have been learning in the last few years is that a large share of that burden is actually being borne by wages. And the types of studies that are being conducted um, are the following. We look at um, uh, companies around the, uh, countries around the world over many decades, and we look at how tax policy changes in those countries and how wages change in those countries. And what we find is these relationships between uh, corporate tax payments um, and wages. Some of these studies find really huge effects, effects that almost seem unbelievable, like a dollar change in a corporate tax is more than a dollar change in wages. Some of the results um, are less than that, uh, that a dollar, change, a dollar increase in, in, cor in corporate taxes might be 50 cents or 75 cents in wages. Uh, those stats, though, do those measure wages overall? Or do they measure, in other words, are they paying the CEO more, so that's where the dollar for dollar comes in? Is that where that's coming it's not, in? It's not, it's not being picked up by the, the 20 people at the top. Um, okay. the, the, those people are earning an enormous amount of money, but they're not earning enough money to be capturing all that benefit themselves. Okay, okay. Just, okay. Could I get, just clarify, at this point in time, Alex, the Congressional Budget Office attributes 80% of the corporate tax to be born by the owners of the corporations and only 20% by the workers. I just want to clarify that. So the vast majority of the taxes that are paid by corporations are being attributed to the owners of those corporations and the owners of corporations are overwhelmingly well-to-do folks. So I just... So the shareholders and... So that's right. Yeah. And if that's true, if, if that's true, if what CDO is saying is true, then we should think about you know corporate tax in one way, right? That that, that that's a tax borne by rich people, by the be the rich people who own the corporations, right. and then we can make decisions about how we want to tax them. If it's the case that that's not true, that the newer evidence is actually right, and that a lot of the burden of this tax falls on workers, then we might think about tax policy differently. Mm -hmm. right? And you, you might not agree with that literature. Not every it's not uniformly agreed to. I'm not mm -hmm. suggesting that there's unanimity in the profession, but that's what the latest evidence is suggesting. Uh, Maria, I just want to know the people who come to United I'm in the middle coast, of this. I wonder if any of your clients would understand, you know, or care. I mean, I think it's very important what we're talking about. But would they give a hoot? Do they? Do they? Do they think of their way? You know, if I said to them, "Hey, we're going to cut corporate taxes, and that's going to be great for you, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, because eventually, on aggregate, wages are going to go up," is that going to help them? pay for dinner, pay for their kids' childcare. I mean, is it going to translate to them? It will translate to them if they get a wage increase, but the reality is that if they don't have the certifications and the trainings needed that warrant that wage increase just because a corporation gets tax breaks, and those, the, the entry-level workers and mid-level workers, mm -hmm. if they don't have the skills to be able to earn that higher wage, it's not going to translate to them. Because a lot of times what we see out there with a lot of our employers, we're investing in a lot of dollars into job training. 
and certifications because we are trying to rise in career pathway the, the workers at the companies to move up. Now will companies spend more money on job training to be able to certify employees because a lot of the entry level workers, they, they go to work, maybe they only have a high school diploma. They need a degree, they need a certification. A lot of times it's just a skill set needed for a company to expand. But a lot of times job creation is based on do we have the skilled workers working to be able to expand our business and grow our markets to be able to to um, grow the corporation. So a lot of it does it end up being part of the workers are the ones that are going to dictate if that company is going to be able to expand. But we see more and more employers that the wage increases they're not giving them just because okay we're going to raise everybody's um, salaries. But this is you know talking from being boots on the ground and working with employers in our area. It's on the ground. It matters. It's on the ground. <laughs> yeah. I, I just wanted to pick up on that point. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I'm a tax guy, and I think that tax policy matters. It affects the decisions that people make. But it would be completely wrong to think that only tax policy matters, and so many other things matter. Um, you know, um, and skills is one of those huge things. And so you could have the best tax code in the world, whatever that would look like. Um, and if people don't have the training they don't need, if they don't have the work ethic, if they don't know, you know, basic soft skills and hard skills about how to get to work on time, how to be responsible, um, it's not going to make a difference. There's so many other factors that, right, that are also important. Well, just uh, you know, related to the, the corporate tax issue and, and, and taxes on, on wealthy folks, uh, the analyses that have been done of, of, of the Trump tax plan and the House Republican tax plan. Uh, but can we just say the t Trump tax plan still a question mark? Right. Yeah, I'm sorry. Still a question mark. Less detail than we had during the campaign. Now even less because now we really don't know what. It's, it's the Trump tax plan that he yes. put out in, during the campaign yes. in the, okay. last uh, September. Mm -hmm. Uh, the analysis of that plan is that 50% of the tax breaks in that plan go to the top 1% uh, after 10 years. So the vast majority goes to the top 1%. And that's because the corporate tax rate is cut so deeply. Corporate and business tax rates are cut so deeply. So the largest benefit, the huge benefit, is going to go to the, to the top 1%. The Republican tax plan that was put out by Paul Ryan last year it's hard to believe, but 99.5% of the tax breaks are attributed to the top 1% after 10 years. 75% in the first year, but then it rises to nine, over 99%. The reason it is because it's not that the top tax rates on individuals are cut so much, it's because of the corporate tax rates cuts uh, and the business tax rates cuts that are in these two plans. And in other words, it goes to this assumption about who bears the burden. Yes, exactly. So that, that suggests that you would, that it really is a, a tax borne by rich people, the corporate rate, and if you cut it, it's all right. Um, this is why my job is so hard, because they both make excellent <laughs> points. You want to say something else? I'm sorry. Um, help me out. Um, do you think, I, when I was talking about doing this panel, I was having discussions with folks at the Aspen Institute, and I said, is the supposition of this panel that the tax code is really the best way to help low and middle income people? And one of the answers I got was, good God, no. But it's the only thing people are willing to talk about. So when you're talking about job skills training and funding that, I mean, it just, it just seems to me that the support for low and middle income families is, it, it is such a multivariate problem. Um, but maybe it starts with the amount of revenue we bring in. I, <clears throat> excuse me. 
so much of the programs that support those families under government spending is it's discretionary. It's what lawmakers want to do in any given year. So it, it fluctuates. And I think Maria can speak to that issue. Um, I know you're talking about uh, VITA, but do you have that experience in other areas where you're helping your yeah, it, it, absolutely, and 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 I believe that the tax reform gives us the opportunity to really look at ways to help the low wage workers. Uh, when we talk about whether it's the VITA program or we look at job training, you know, uh, and EIC, EIC is a very important component for the working families because it's one program that really has encouraged working and families uh, can work towards the job skills and growing and it's one of the programs that's a curve you know as they make more than the tax credit the tax credit that they get will start going down but they see the advantage because they're making a higher wage so it's very important and we've in Florida had an appropriation for VITA that was 500000 that we received last year. And Florida uh, was the only state this year that the VITA returns were up 9% because we were able to really focus and put a lot of VITA sites and really reach out to the working families. But we partnered with employers in bringing the VITA tax returns to the employers where the workers are working. Because a lot of times it's a lot of the barriers that when you think of a a low-wage worker, a moderate, they have a lot of barriers. Some of them have two jobs. They have families. And bringing the VITA returns and our preparers to the place of employment eliminates one thing that they don't have to, plus we open sites on, on Saturdays. Uh, but having appropriations, and we, and we talk about wanting to be able for VITA to be something permanent that we see in, in, the, in the tax code, um, because it's so important and so useful for families, as well as um, job training. Uh, you know, and one of the things, EIC is another thing that we want to preserve. We want to keep the EIC. If you think about it, in the 90s, when EIC was expanded, uh, we had more single moms going back to work because it encourages work over welfare reform. So these programs are very important. And looking at what we put, I really believe that the reform is an opportunity for us to look at how do we help our low-wage um, workers. We're talking about fam um, families with children. They're working hard. They're, they're not there because they want a handout. They want the easy way out. Believe me, I believe that some of these folks work harder than we do because they're trying to support their families. And the tax code sometimes does not help them because, yes, they may pay a lower tax rate, but they're paying sales tax. They're paying. They're taxed in other ways that it affects their daily of being able to support their families. Okay. Just to give you a concrete example, I'm kind of was racking my brain. How much does the federal government spend on job training? And I, I don't know that. But let me give you a different comparison. We call it a tax trade-off. Um, so we spend. The government spends uh, on the earned income tax credit about $63 billion a year. Uh, this is the income support that um, Maria was just talking about. It helps low-wage workers. It, it gives them the incentive to work. Uh, and they get about $3,000 in their pocket uh, through this program. 27 million people get it uh, every year. Uh, that's probably about half of who's eligible for it. Uh, there's a huge number that aren't even, aren't even making it available to themselves. So one and why is that? Why, just remind us why they're not taking advantage of it, because they don't understand it? Uh, don't Is that why? They don't know. Okay. They don't know about okay. it. And they, they don't, don't know understand about it. it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So one company, Apple, 
we all know Apple, probably half the people in this room have Apple phones. Uh, they have $235 billion in profits that are offshore that are untaxed. Alex was talking about that. Now they're, they're taxed, uh, and, and Apple, they're taxed, they're taxed offshore. They're paying a 6% tax rate on the profits that are offshore. How do we know that? Because Apple has told the Securities and Exchange Commission they were supposed to report this to the SEC, that if they were to bring the money back, they would owe a 29% tax on that money. And our, our rate's 35%, 35 minus 6% that are paying offshore is, is 29%. So that 29% is $75 billion. So that one company owes us $75 billion in taxes. That's more than what is being spent on the EITC. That's the kind of comparisons that we need to think about, uh, and I would say we need to change, <laughs> in order to afford the kinds of investments that uh, are going to make a difference in the lives of, of working people. So then let me ask you on the corporate tax front, what should the cor top corporate tax rate be, and do you want the worldwide, so there's the, right now we have a worldwide system, which means that wherever you earn your dollars, the United States government is going to tax you on them if you're a business. The question is when you bring it back, that's when they tax you. Most countries have a territorial system, which is businesses only pay taxes on the profits where the profits are earned. And there's a proposal with Republicans to change the United States to a territorial system. So do you want worldwide or territorial? And what's your top rate? And the same question to you, and you if you want to answer. So we, no. uh, our organization is in favor. Uh, we actually haven't taken a position on, we want to, uh, by and large, the system we've got now, uh, we want to end the loophole, it's called deferral, that lets companies avoid taxes on those offshore profits. Uh, we think that just like we pay our taxes every single year, the corporations ought to pay their taxes every single year. They shouldn't be allowed to defer taxes until they, quote unquote, bring the money back. And let's be clear, most of the money that they have offshore is not really offshore. Right. It's booked offshore in their subsidiaries. Most of it's invested back here in treasury bonds and other corporate bonds. They just can't bring it back to the parent company and use it. Um, we haven't actually, t as a coalition, we've not taken a position on what we think the top tax rate is because uh, we want to see what, what it all ends up being, right? But you want to preserve the worldwide system. Yes, no more by, by and large. Yeah. Our problem with, the, with going to a territorial tax system, right now, uh, we're losing about $100 billion every single year by corporations that are shifting their profits offshore uh, through uh, patents, intellectual property. It's mostly high-tech companies and drug companies and some finance companies. They are able, because of the loopholes we have, they're able to shift their profits offshore and avoid paying these taxes on. These are profits that are earned here in America, uh, but they're just making it look like they're earned in their subsidiaries offshore. So we want to close that loophole. Uh, you know, what the rate is in the end, for, for us is determined by how much money do we need to raise okay. uh, in order to have the kind of economy uh, that is going to be able to make the investments that we need. It's going to be able to take care of seniors in retirement, uh, et cetera. Okay. And so that number is a little hazy, right? Because right. Uh, okay. it depends a lot on what individuals are going well, to pay. But also it's going to depend on all the gaming that companies will do to not pay it, well, if you raise the rate or keep it higher. Whether or whatever. you get rid of those loopholes. Right. So right. what's the, your favorite top rate? And, yeah. and I assume you want to go to territorial. Yeah, so my, my view, not maybe perhaps not surprisingly, is a, is a little different than Frank's. Um, I think that a lot of the income that's earned in the current system by corporations um, is ungettable 
um, by the IRS under the structure that we have. Um, and so we can, we can sort of observe the income that's being earned, and, and we can do that through SEC filings and others. Um, but actually being able to capture that money, I think, would prove um, very difficult. And the reason is because we live in a very competitive environment. Um, Fifty years ago, when the United States economy was more closed and we were less engaged in, in, in trade and, and financial markets were less sophisticated, um, we, uh, it was easier to capture this money. Um, but through the strategy that Frank's describing, um, firms are, are locating their intellectual property off, um, offshore and they're engaging in these strategies that I mentioned earlier. Um, and they will continue to do that. They will continue to optimize their tax system. And we can, um, we can think of that as unfair and unjust and unright. Um, but we also need to think about having a tax system um, that's operational. Um, and so the incentives for firms to engage in these practices, and I'm not saying that they don't. I'm, I'm agreeing with Frank that they do engage in these practices, um, is large when the difference between our tax system and the tax system of our trading partners is large. And so we have a top uh, tax rate of around 35% in the United States, of 35% plus uh, state and local tax. Just by law, but they pay less than that once they take all their tax breaks. Um, but on the margin, when they're earning an additional dollar, um, they generally would pay that amount of tax if that, if that dollar was subject to tax. Mm -hmm. If they uh, engage in the same activity, in France or Germany or Italy or Spain or Portugal or Ireland for sure or the UK for sure or Canada or Mexico or anywhere else they would pay far less and so again we can say well they're not that's not fair or right but it, it is operational for them and so then the question is is because their obligation is to their shareholders not to their country th that's right I yeah. mean th th they're complying with the law um, and there are and, and those are their obligations mm -hmm. and so they are they are truly earning money around the world um, uh, and, and paying taxes and offshore um, and they are also engaging in strategies to maximize the extent to which it looks like they're earning money um, offshore they're doing both um, and I don't think we can we can capture that money uh, certainly not by raising um, the, the corporate tax system. The question is, is, is there another way um, to, uh, that's less distortionary, that wouldn't encourage them to play these games where we could um, collect uh, an appropriate amount of money? Um, some people have suggested that that might actually, uh, that there'd be less gamemanship if the rate was lower, if it was more competitive. If we had a rate like other countries' rates in the 20s um, instead of in the 30s, then companies would earn would pay tax where they truly earn it, and when they truly earned it in the United States, they would pay the tax here in the United States, and they wouldn't have those same incentives uh, to offshore their profits. Um, the House Republicans have put forward a rather unpopular proposal um, that I think is quite elegant, called our border adjustment tax, that would go at the heart of this issue and ensure um, that there would be that, that tax collection. Um, the other thing I'll note is that when we think, just to put uh, orders of magnitude on things, um, about 10% of the federal tax receipts come from the corporate tax. So where does the federal government get the money that it gets, uh, the 18% of the revenues that it gets? Um, generally from individual income taxes. Um, so um, as you noted, a lot of low and moderate income households uh, pay no or, or negative federal income tax liabilities. Um, most of the money that's, that's collected today in our system to pay for the programs that we operate um, are from the income tax system. So when we think about reforming the tax code, if we wanted to reform the tax code in a way to raise more money, it would seem that we would want to do that if that was the goal. We would go where the money is, right? We would go and we would broaden the tax base 
um, and collect more money from individuals. Trying to collect more money from, from corporations is going to be but I, But also we should make the point that a lot of the let's just call it business taxes, a lot of it is coming through the individual code now because you, know, you have a choice when you set up a company to incorporate or, or become a, what's called a pass-through business, what a ridiculous term, but whatever. Um, it just means that you, the, the business's profits get passed through to you and you pay the tax on your individual tax return. Mm -hmm. So over the last 30, 40 years or whatever, a lot of business income tax has, has transferred to the income tax system. So In part because just, the, yeah. of the inefficiencies of the corporate right. system. Right. Okay, so Frank. Just two quick points um, so folks understand. Uh, most of the money that's offshore, 75% of it is owned or held by 50 corporations. 40% of it is hold, held by 10 corporations. So there's a small number of corporations that we're talking about that have the vast uh, amount of this profits. It starts with Apple, Microsoft, GE, and Pfizer. Uh, Apple alone has 10% of those profits offshore. So we're talking about a very small number of companies. There's a lot of companies that are paying 30%, 31%, 32%. Those are domestic companies. So the, we're, the tail wagging the dog here is these, off, is these multinationals that are, aren't paying close to their fair share. The second closing point I'd make on this is that uh, most of the money is not in France or Germany or Britain, companies, countries that are true competitors of ours. Most of this offshore profits is being booked in tax havens, where there's a 0% tax rate or a 1% or 2% tax rate, and we will never compete with that. And if you create a territorial tax system, it means the tax rate that they're going to pay is where they book their profit. So it's just going to make, I say it's going to make the world a tax haven. Okay, so we... Kill deferral. The minute you earn your profits, pay tax right now, right now, to the United States government. What are you going to do if I tell you that? Well, I'm not a corporation. So you are a corporation. You look like a corporation. What, what, what would you like do as a corporation? corporation. <laughs> you look like a corporation. <laughs> what would you do if it's that would change? So it's a function of the rate. Uh, so, uh, and, I'm, and I'm not, and I'm not ducking the, the, the question. Uh, it's a 25% rate. They do what the House wants to do. We lower from 35% to 25%, but no more deferral for So the House proposal is a 20%. 20. But, um, no, for corporation. Oh, right. Sorry, that was in the yeah. investors. Right. 20%. Yeah. 20%. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, at, at some point when the rate is, is low enough, the importance and value of deferral um, diminishes. So okay. that, that's true. That's, it's, it's the same with, with a whole spectrum of, of, of in other provisions. So we say uh, net interest deductibility should go away, or there should be expensing, or depreciation, or this credit or that credit. When the rate gets low, the distortions in the code get small. And so it's one of the reasons to have a low rate. When we have a low rate, you know, sort of the right. other things matter a lot less. They matter a lot less. Okay. It also it also matters a lot less as a policy. It also matters a lot less as a budgetary issue. So whether we have deferral or not, if the rate's 15, it doesn't matter as much as when we have deferral or not, and the rate okay. is 35. Okay. Um, let's talk specific tax breaks for individuals because I think we've. We're not going to resolve corporate taxation uh, as much as I was hoping to. Earned income tax credit. What do each of you think needs to be done to improve on that credit to, so that it has better reach, it's better targeted to the people who need it most? Um, I think that uh, there's a low uh, suboptimal take-up rate, so not everyone who's entitled to the program um, should be is taking advantage of the program. Um, we need better publicity and awareness um, so that everyone who's, who should be getting it should be getting, uh, is getting it. Um, we also have a problem with improper payments. Um, a lot of people who are not eligible for the program um, are, are successfully claiming benefits, and we need to figure a way to tackle that problem while making the other problem go away. 
So those are the two things that lawmakers focus on, anti-abuse and, and advertising. Utilization, fact, the, yeah, the, yeah to, to boost utilization. Maria. So first of all, let's preserve it. Let's not lose <laughs> what we have. But we, we also have where uh, a, a, a worker without children, they, don't, they get a smaller uh, credit. But if someone's under 25 or over 65, uh, they're not eligible. We see a lot of seniors that have to work. It's not that they're just working a little bit because they want a little extra money. So if they're over 65, they're not eligible to get a credit. So maybe looking at how can we um, expand that, that, because if you think about a, a worker that's tw under 25, but you know, they may be 23 years old, and they're not getting a credit, they still could be in, in poverty because maybe they're only making $16,000, $17,000 a year. And that applies to single parents under 25. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So they don't get their income tax credit, even right. though it's meant right. to support if they're families. Un, if they're under 25 okay. or over uh, 65. So okay. looking at the, both of those and um, being able to... Expanding you know, eligibility expa is Expanding the most eligibility. Thing. Not increasing the value of it, not changing the... Just expanding it so that it hits people under 25 if they're parents and people over 65 if they're low income. It's, it, you know, the EIC or EITC is one of the best um, mechanisms we have to encourage work. And if we think about corporations that need to have the demand, the families that are receiving the tax refunds that they're using to pay down their debt, they're using it to put a down payment down on a car, they are using it during times that maybe they're not getting a paycheck, that they're saving the money. You know, we have to look at its, its economic impact. They're spending the money back in the economy that stimulates and stimulates jobs and increases demand. So it's, it's, very, uh, it's just a very powerful uh, mechanism that we could have to encourage workers. And we want more workers because when we talk about income tax and the way that we're raising money to be able to pay for programs or be able to pay for things, we have to have workers working. If they're not working because they cannot afford to go to work, we're not going to be able to do what both of you are talking about. I think the one, just building on Maria's uh, point, I, I, I believe uh, for, individ, for individuals uh, uh, that they aren't eligible above, above $15,000 a year, they do not get any ITC support. If they don't have kids, you mean? Or is this about single, children? Single. Okay. Single, single not sing married, but not having right. to do with whether you have children. Correct. Single, no Correct. kids. Single, single no, no kids. kids. Single so no kids. basically, okay. you're saying that you can, you might get some help up to minimum wage. Right. But beyond that, you're not going to get any help. Now, you know, in a lot of cities, you can't live on minimum wage. <laughs> Sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the most critical. Uh, so expand the eligibility to people with no children who are single. Yeah, uh, right. And so single parents under 25, single people without kids generally, and people over 65 because if they're low income. Yes, and I would say in the grand scheme of things, if I'm rejiggering the federal budget, <laughs> if there's money to, you know, when you look at where you want to make your investments, this is an important place to make some investments. So hopefully, in the end, we got more money to invest and this might be one of those places mm -hmm. overall in terms of for everybody right um, child care costs are big in the news we you know we've gotten a lot of suggestions that the Trump administration is is interested in helping people uh, you know pay their pay their child care costs um, but how it's done really makes a difference I, I think broadly and tell me if I'm wrong about this even though you may have the best tax break in the world, if it doesn't come to someone who has to pay their daycare costs this month, 
it's not going to come for 12 months or more to them. Is there a way to make that more available to them? I mean, in the same way the health credit, uh, the, I'm sorry, the subsidy that the Affordable Care Act offers, it's, it's sort of advanced to you. Is there a way to do that with child care? I mean, the programs can be, you know, the credits can be advanceable. I mean, they could be they incremental. And they, they can be. They can be. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so it could come out um, uh, uh, on a quarterly basis, a monthly basis. Um, you know, there's slightly higher administrative costs, I think. Um, there's an issue about how to rectify that at the end, because you don't really know till the end right. of the year what your annual um, income is going to be. And so if you're eligible, you think you're eligible for a program for the first six months, and you're drawing on that benefit, if it turns out that you earn a lot in the last six months and you're not eligible for that program, how are we going to recoup those costs? So there are sort of operational uh, mechanical issues um, that need to be wrestled with, um, but if that's important, that could be right. that could be designed into the program. Do you, are you happy with the child care tax credits as they are today? Is there any improvements that you think need to happen? Well, I think there always could be improvements to everything. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges for workers is uh, a lot of families are paying as much as a mortgage or rent for child care. So, you know, when they're making $12, $13 an hour and it's costing them, if they have two children, close to $1,000 a month for childcare, it's, uh, it's one of the uh, biggest reasons that employers say that they have high turnover because families cannot afford childcare. And some employers are working to, to um, putting childcares at the place of work because it's such a challenge. So, you know, that's something that, you know, we have to think about. I mean, President Obama had made a major proposal to expand the child care assistance uh, grants, and uh, uh, it was co it cost eighty million dollars, billion dollars. Sorry, over ten years, it was eighty billion dollars. Uh, we don't uh, do millions anymore. About what Apple would owe. Uh, owes, I mean, You're double counting. I'm double counting. I am double counting. <laughs> I'm giving a Microsoft example too, um, and uh, that would have helped two million families. I can't remember what the how much each family would have gotten, or on average, how much they would have gotten, but it essentially would have made it much more viable for them to work uh, because of the assistance on childcare. Mm -hmm. What of the tax firm discussion we've heard? What makes you most hopeful if lawmakers do manage to get it over the finish line, which is a big, big question at the moment? Um, Marie, in particular, you have you heard anything from out of Washington that makes you think, oh, good? Anything <laughs> at all? <laughs> Just something we can. One thing we'll all remember it. Any, anything? Wow, that's not a fair question right now. Um, well, I'm hopeful that they're talking about tax reform that there is an opportunity with tax reform that maybe we can look at uh, when we're looking at whether it's the VITA or the EIC or preserving the charitable deductions for families. Uh, I'm hoping that they're going to look at all that. I, I, I can't say right now, I'm, I really can't think of something, but, but right. I'm, I'm hopeful but because they are talking tax reform. Right. So if that happens, right. that's hope. One of, one of the things we actually talked about before this meeting, which it hadn't occurred to me before I got here, she was saying, I hope they keep the charitable deduction. And I was saying, well, I think they are. Nobody's saying to get rid of it in the proposals we've seen. But then I remember they want to repeal the estate tax. And the reason a lot of people give to charities is because they want to lower their estate to avoid the estate tax. So yes, how is that going to work for you? No, I mean, I just, I, I, I've talked to some financial planners, and they've, they've brought that up as a concern, that charities might suffer. Do you, do you agree with that, or do you think? 
Not so much. So, so why it's so important is that when we're sitting back and you know our major. Uh, the work that we do in communities to help families with financial stability and raise families out of poverty. And a lot of the burdens fall on the not-for-profits to provide a lot of the services. And as we keep hearing of programs that are going to be cut, and we start thinking, okay, well, that means we're going to have to step up as, as not-for-profits to be able to do more work to help families because we want communities to thrive and we care about everybody that lives in our communities. If the charitable deductions are reduced that we do not receive as many, then it's almost like we're getting double whammy is how we're getting hit because the program's cut and the federal funding won't come down to us nor the charitable deduction. So at this time, we start thinking, OK, what are we going to do at that point? So it's very important to us. However it falls or how they, it happens, we, it's something that we're watching very closely because it's very important to, the, to everyone that lives in our communities. I would just add, um, when we think about where the charitable donations dollars come from, um, they, uh, some of them come from the state, you know, state tax planning. Um, overwhelmingly, they come from living individuals who are making contributions. Um, and um, many people make charitable contributions and don't get a tax credit or a tax deduction, rather. Um, and and many because they don't itemize. Because they don't itemize. Yeah. They take um, a standard deduction. And. And many people um, claim a lot of benefits. A lot of high-income earners who are donating money are getting a very large um, uh, federal tax subsidy. That's what that deduction is. Um, that encourages them, and they do respond. Don't, uh, individuals do give more because of the charitable uh, deduction. And if it were to be curtailed, um, uh, that would have an adverse effect. Going back to what Trump said um, during the campaign, not something that he said more recently. He did have a proposal to limit itemized deductions, and that would have had an that policy would have an adverse effect. Right, um, right. I, my suspicion is it would have less of an effect on, on VITA programs just because of the way the distribution of dollars come, um, but it would certainly ha have an effect. Um, and quite frankly, um, the proposals to double the standard deduction would make fewer people itemize and would right. limit that incentive the value for some of, charitable. Mm -hmm. some of the charitable. Mm -hmm. And so that, that would have an effect. So, so even, if, forget, even if they didn't repeal the estate tax, they preserve the charitable deduction just by doubling the standard and pushing more people onto the standard deduction, you think that will also have a negative? So far, charities are not coming out very well in this. <laughs> what I would say, just, just sort of in the weeds yeah. here, with respect to what um, Speaker Ryan and, and Chairman Brady said in their, yeah. in their uh, blueprint, um, they have, were very clear on the importance of charitable giving. Um, there are certain elements of that blueprint that have not been fully sure. um, laid out. And they were, it was clear from reading that document that they intend to ensure Preserve that um, people continue to have an incentive. To set it separate, OK. Frank, did you want to wait on this? Well, just back to your the first question about um, uh, do, do, where do, do we want tax reform, I guess, is really the question. Or what, what op, is there something to look forward to in tax reform? Well, what are you hearing out of Washington that makes you optimistic? From, as, a, as an organization that uh, you know, thinks that the system needs to be, uh, we need to raise a lot more revenue from the system. Uh, the, the proposals that are out there are going in the complete opposite direction from our point of view. So we're much better off uh, trying to stop tax reform at this stage of the game. We think uh, with President Trump in the White House and uh, with the Congress controlled by the Republican Party on both sides, that we will not get a what, what I would call progressive tax reform that will benefit most Americans. Mm -hmm. um, I have one last question, and I'm going to turn it over to the audience. Um, we, we also talked about the so-called benefits cliff on some tax breaks, meaning if I earn above a certain amount, I lose benefits from 
a social welfare program that I need to, to sustain my family, um, is there something they can do in the tax code to appease that effect? Because it can really, because a parent can think, well, maybe I won't work. Because you sort of weigh these horrible options, like I won't work because I'm going to lose the benefits if I earn this much. Is that a fair description? So what could uh, I just give the, ma the macro answer, which yeah. is um, those issues can be mitigated, and it is expensive to mitigate those issues. And so you can mitigate those cliffs um, by um, phasing out those benefits for people as their incomes rise. You could mitigate those effects by making those programs available to people at higher levels of income. Um, uh, and doing so expands the cost of those programs. And so there is a tension between targeting the benefits of the people who are most in need of this assistance um, and not providing the, the, you know, uh, these programs to high-income individuals. So at some point, you have to flip from being able to get it to being right. able to not get it. Right. And then um, as you sort of relax the rules, make it more generous, either give it to more people or slow the phase out, um, you can take away some of that sting and there's a budgetary consequence of it. Mm -hmm. and that's the mm -hmm. trade-off. Did you want to weigh in? Yeah, and you know, we talked about um, training employees. So Career Edge is one of our programs that we 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 raise private funding for Career Edge, and that's to invest in the low to mid-level workers to provide training dollars to the companies to be able to upskill their workers and lift them up so they can make higher wages. And we often run into the employers um, saying to us help us help us because our turnover rates in the 90 percent with a low wage worker and they ask where do we need to get them to that they they don't quit because they do because of, again if they lose what happens is that they now report that they're making let's say twelve dollars an hour and three months later they have to report for child care assistance that they're receiving or um, food stamps and they get cut they just get cut off and at that point that parent has to make the decision, I cannot afford to go to work. Uh, and this is why I think we really believe in the EIC, because that's more of a curve. As employees earn more, the, the tax credit is, is lower, but they see their wages going up, and we can have that conversation. But now you're making this much money, and you don't need those services. And that's the true um, economic power of lifting people up. So the benefits cliff is very real, and I believe that employers suffer a lot from the benefits cliff because of employees quitting because they cannot afford to go to work. So it's something that I think we talked about that on the state level we have to look at how do you have a gradual staging off process uh, as workers are training so they can make the higher wages so they're out of that benefits cliff um, situation. Okay. I guess a, a thing to add, I, I think raising the minimum wage is critical to give to put people up there where they they're getting a livable wage uh, and that's more important than anything we could do on, on taxes to be honest with you I think then the question becomes okay if folks are at fifteen dollars an hour are you know is there still going to be that cliff and it probably depends on the region of the country and whether it's urban or rural that sort of thing but is that cliff going to be there and if it is then obviously we've got to change the eligibility criteria for food stamps and the ITC etc but I think the most important thing is let's get a minimum a solid minimum wage there first and that that gives people so much more dignity because they're then working they're making their living that they can afford to uh, survive with their family so it's up to you guys to grill them.
So I think you're going to be passing out a, a mic around. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Larry Checker, check on the communication. It's not. It, it, it's not. Thank you very much. I think it's Green. The green light's on. There you go. Okay. Uh, Larry Checko, Checko Communications. Uh, this may sound like an off-topic question, but I am just wondering, has anybody ever done any studies on the impact of promoting birth control on the budget? For example, what we're looking at now is um, a total decimation of Planned Parenthood, for example, and I think this has impact on all the budgetary stuff that we've talked about. Child care, uh, people having kids that they don't want and having to lose their jobs or leave their jobs, uh, job training, it goes on and on and on. There's a ripple effect here. Is anybody doing any investigation of that? I don't know, really. I, I don't know. No. Yeah. Is it worth doing? I... That's outside my scope. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy I to say that, too. want their children. Yeah. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, <clears throat> my name is Carl Polzer, and uh, I've started a project called the Center on Capital and Social Equity, which is trying to include everybody in our economy. Uh, I noticed in the background material there, you, there was a lot of emphasis on tax exclusions and deductibility, where there's a lot of inequity for, like, for retirement savings accounts, up to half a trillion, most of it going to high-income people. So, for example, on, on retirement accounts, more than $100 billion is, is foregone in taxes because it's excluded from income, most of the high income people. What if we rearrange those a little bit? So half the people have no retirement account now. And you reduce the tax advantage at the top and you provided a tax credit at the bottom for everybody. So everybody would be a capitalist. Everybody would have a little bit of capital under their control, learn about it. And you know, it's like 40 or $50 billion a year. Or you could just get it from somewhere else by raising the corporate tax. But, but I mean, there's stuff like that that needs some discussion. Home, I mean, there's home mortgage. Do you, do you mean by that, that if I save $100, that I get a tax credit for $100 from the government, no, they I just mean, I, reward my savings? I think the initial, it would be like a <coughs> once and for all gift. Like every year, the government would put two or 300 bucks in everybody, oh. everybody's account. Mm -hmm. You don't even have to keep it. You could opt out. And then, um, so, you know, a small amount just to establish an account. So they have somewhere to go. If they go to a job, they have an account. Well, I think uh, the challenge is, I mean, he, you're, I mean, you focused on retirement security uh, because there actually sort of is a crisis around retirement security for a lot of the population. And what you're referring to is uh, it's tax expenditures. Um, tax expenditures are spending by another name. Uh, and what this is is uh, there's there's tax breaks for money that's put aside in, in pensions, and there's tax breaks for money that's put aside in your 401k if you're lucky enough to have enough income that you can put money in a 401k. Uh, I think the two combined uh, uh, cost are about $150 billion a year, so it's a lot of money, no question about it. Now, our organization uh, doesn't have a we think that helping people save for retirement is, is quite important. 
the, cha the problem with the way the tax expenditures are designed now is what you're raising, which is most of the benefits are, be are able to be taken by folks at the top of the income scale because they are the ones who actually have the disposable income where they can put it in a 401k or they've got a, a great job where the employer is doing that for them. And what's happening is folks at the bottom aren't able to save for retirement, uh, first of all, because they just don't make enough money. And I mean, two or three hundred dollars a year, I, I don't, you know, would be a help, but it probably isn't, isn't enough money to, to do what you need to have that nest egg to supplement Social Security in the back end. So I agree we need to revise how these uh, programs are structured so a lot more of the benefit is going to folks at the bottom, lower down the scale. I think the problem with the retirement security area is that there's, I mean, so, uh, you know, people's disposable income, I mean, 50,000 bucks a year, you probably don't have that much money to, to save away every year. You're just living. I, I would just note that there's a policy called the Savers Credit, which works in a um, general direction. It's not the program that you described, but there is a program, a federal income tax program called the Savers Credit, which, which encourages low and moderate income households to, to save modestly. Um, and then, of course, there's, there's the Social Security program. When people are paying in and, and at low income levels, they're getting a relatively uh, high return. Now that program is not on, on stable ground going forward, but the, the, the uh, components of that program um, provide uh, income replacement uh, that's reasonable relative to people's uh, pre-retirement income. But to the point that I, I don't make enough money to save, so even if there's a saver's credit, I can't take advantage of it because I'm paying the daycare and I'm paying for dinner and I'm so do you, have, do you have any response to the idea of a government infusing some few hundred dollars of cash, even though, as Frank noted, it's not very much? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, you know, liberals were quick to, to attack proposals a decade or two ago about privatizing Social Security where, we right. would, where the government right. would create personal accounts right. um, and put money in people's accounts. Right. Um, so there are, those ideas do exist. Um, um, they're not too popular at the right. moment. Right. Yes, sir. Patrick Brown, I'm a graduate student. Um, I'm wondering if anyone could uh, talk about some of the discussions around a universal child credit and some of the uh, proposals from Senator Rubio and others to uh, to raise the amount and refundability of the child tax credit and the benefits and drawbacks from that. To increase the child tax credit? Um, yeah, I think there's there are very few proposals, if any, I think at the moment that are sort of popular in Congress to, to um, increase the child tax credit. Folks, remember this is a policy that was created in 1997. It was a $500 credit. Um, uh, President Clinton and Republicans in Congress created this policy for the first time. Uh, the policy was doubled to $1,000 uh, per child um, in the 2001 uh, tax cut uh, that President Bush um, and congressional Republicans um, pushed through. Um, and the eligibility of that, of that credit has been expanded um, somewhat over time. It's refundable, uh, partially refundable. Um, it costs about $45 billion a year, I think, um, and phases out for, for moderate income households. Um, uh, if, uh, all, the only thing I would say from a policy perspective is that if you were to increase that credit, um, you would also be increasing the disparity in tax liabilities um, among low and moderate income households. 
Um, and so uh, that's a tax relief that only goes to parents. And I don't, I'm a parent, and so you know, I get it. So it's, I don't mean it um, critically. But there are a lot of um, uh, low and moderate income households um, that are ineligible because they're not parents. Um, and so we want to think about what the distribution of those benefits are among the low and moderate income class, as well as other factors. Yes, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm Will Rice. I work with Frank at ATF. But I've also been a VITA volunteer and for several years. And I was always impressed by people, even with very low incomes, were very concerned about making sure they paid their taxes. There was a, I was very impressed by that. Um, I just want to go back to the, the first discussion and just ask Alex, um, not only are corporate profits at record highs, but corporate cash, just the amount of cash, not only offshore but onshore corporations have is at record levels, and borrowing is very cheap. So if companies have access to all this money, why aren't they investing that? And why are they instead, as some studies show, spending over half their profits on stock buybacks and dividends, which just helps their shareholders and their executives, rather than opening factories, hiring people, making more products? If the supply side theory works, why, aren't, why isn't it working when corporations already have so much money? Uh, yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I don't know why at any moment in time um, firms would hold cash versus um, dispel their cash. Um, obviously, the fir firms that, that are holding cash um, could be anticipating a tax reform um, that would lower the tax burden um, if that cash is held offshore um, and is untaxed at the moment. So the fact that um, a decade ago or so um, we provided a temporary tax break that encouraged firms to bring the tax back their, their, at the time it was a trillion dollars they were holding offshore. We said, okay, if you bring it back in the next six months, you get a tax break on that. Well, what happened after that window closed? Everyone said, oh, this is great. We're going to try, we'll, we'll, let's, let's do this again, right? And so that has the adverse effect of encouraging firms um, to hold their cash offshore. Now, you said this cash offshore and and onshore, um, you know, firms that may be retaining uh, earnings onshore, you know, for a variety of reasons. They may be planning uh, an expansion. They may be planning an acquisition. Um, they may be hoping um, for a, a lower tax a, a tax change that means that they could pay a dividend at a lower at a lower break. Um, I think it's important to distinguish between sort of the the moment in time analysis and sort of the long run analysis, and we need, we need to think about both. Um, so, you know, in the long run. Um, you know, firms must return their cash um, uh, to their shareholders. Um, but that's the really long run, right? The question is why at any moment in time are they not? I don't have a good answer for that. Yes, the, the lady in the back. My name's Elaine. I lost my voice this weekend. Um, I'm Elaine Mogg from the Tax Policy Center. And Alex, in your opening remarks, and then later when you said the big problem with the EITC is a low take-up, and you tossed out the number of 50%, my sense is that that's wrong, and that if that take-up is that low, it's only among people who are eligible for very low credits, um, primarily workers without qualifying children. So I'm wondering if maybe the answer to your problem of low take-up is what your co-panelists suggest, which is increasing the childless EITC so that it's very similar to what families with children already get in the three to $5,000 range? Uh, if I said that, I was only puppeting someone else. Uh, I, I don't have it. I didn't come with a stat on, on the take-up rate. Uh, so if Frank did. So, uh, so I might have repeated Frank's comment, but I, I don't know the statistics on, on take-up. I think the fix is an interesting idea, though. 
I mean, this, the. Yes, sir. Hi there. Um, my name is Jesse. I'm a student at the University of Michigan and an intern at ACG Analytics. Um, I was wondering, Mr. Brillian mentioned earlier the border adjustment tax is a possible solution to kind of this gamesmanship we see corporations engaging in to um, have profits offshore. Um, my question for you was about the border adjustment tax and the way you mentioned it, the way you speak of it, it really just kind of sounds like an import tariff. Could you explain the difference if there is one between those two? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. Um, it may be an academic question because I'm not sure we're going to have this tax. Um, it certainly does feel, in many regards, like an import tariff because uh, the way the proposal works is two pieces to the border adjustment tax. One is to disallow the ability to deduct um, uh, as an expense your imports, a firm's imports. Um, and so in that sense, they would, a tax would be paid on the imports. What's critically important to understanding the sort of the economics of this policy is, the, is that it is not that alone. It is also, and this also seems to bother some people, but you have to understand sort of the way these two factors work together. Um, the other part of the border adjustment tax is an exclusion for the revenues associated with exports. And so it is an import um, tax and an export subsidy in equal and uniform measure. And it is that factor, that the, the symmetry of this policy um, with respect to imports and exports that public finance economists will tell you um, will, will have a, um, the effect is a wash. The, the theoretical effect is a wash. Um, and the reason is, is because um, this change on both sides of the ledger, imports and, and exports, will result in an adjustment in the value of the dollar. There's a dispute and a debate, sort of an argument among economists about whether that exchange rate effect will occur, whether it'll occur perfectly, whether it'll occur immediately. Um, the theory is, is sort of simple and elegant, um, that, that it will adjust. Um, there are some reasons to think it might not adjust perfectly, but, but that's a, the idea. As a result of that, if you sort of buy that theory, that response, then imports become cheaper. So they're taxed, yes, but they're also cheaper. And, the, and you, you're, you're back to where you started in sort of the, the net cost. Um, and some people don't buy that theory. Um, they don't think that the market works that way. Um, they don't think that there's a, a liquid market or a perfect market for currencies, and they're concerned that it's going to result in higher prices for consumer goods. There's a gentleman over here. Yes, sir. I, I know that an issue, um, Mark Green from SafetyNet in uh, Madison, Wisconsin, um, there's an issue uh, with people in America suffering or living with income volatility, and it's a, a big issue. Um, and from what I've heard, people uh, solve for that in a lot of cases by going into their retirement account and taking on a hefty penalty for taking you know, that money um, out. And I'm wondering if, if there's been any talk about relieving some of that pain uh, for people uh, with maybe getting rid of that or having an income-based uh, penalty. Or, or maybe you know what the effect of that penalty is for people based on their income, or, or if there's a way to to help people with that issue. Because it, it, to me, it seems like it's an issue of either not making enough money. They're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to do things that the tax code is encouraging, but you know life gets in the way and it makes it really hard to do that. So I'm wondering if there's some study or. 
for analysis on that. And just to be clear, you're talking about the 10% penalty yes. plus income tax that's owed on a 401k withdrawal Exa or something exactly. like that. Exactly, sorry. Right, sorry the hardship withdrawal. Yes. Although I'm forgetting the rules now. If it's a hardship withdrawal, do you still get the tax? I'm sorry if I forget. Do you, are you aware of that? I'm, I know the penalty is 10%, but I don't know if there are there waivers to that penalty. I think there might be a waiver if it's true hardship and you have certain... You're nodding yes, and you look very smart, so I'm going to go with yes. Yes, that's my fact check right now. But is your broader point, people should have access to their retirement savings at all times without penalty? Yes, or maybe there should be something uh, linked to the income. I mean, if they have a really rough year where they're you know, below the poverty line or something like that, but mm -hmm. they have some savings, I mean, I think that's when it, it, right. it taxed them the most when they needed the most, and I don't think that the tax code is meant to, to punish people. So have a rule based on income volatility. If, you're, if your income drops more than X percent, you should be allowed to tap your savings. That's an interesting idea. Does anyone have any thoughts? It's, it's not an area I'm knowledgeable about. I wish I could help uh, give you some opinion. But uh, I, I understand people's circumstances change year to year, so it would be definitely helpful to smooth that out. Is it, do, you, do your clients have retirement savings that they've used in that way? Um, I'm not aware of any, but I'm sure that they have. You know, that's why we're trying to um, work with financial institutions to help build assets and open up accounts that then they have as a fallback. But one of the things that I think we're finding um, most successful is helping our clients um, build credit. So, but, you know, I'm not really um, sure about that. but. But they need money, and we, ha we have some employers that are setting up accounts with credit unions that if they have an emergency, they can go and, and get a short-term loan, and it will be deducted out of their pay, out of their, um, pay stub um, to pay that back, while at the same time, they're building credit because it'll be reported. So they're trying to find different alternatives to help families because it does happen, and they're trying to keep them away from places that they may have to pay some high interest to be able to use their own money. Yes, sir, in the back. Hi, uh, <clears throat> uh, on Degrini, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm curious if we take the budget of the earned income tax credit, uh, because you get the credit at the end of the year, there's the incentive to work, you don't see it immediately, versus say if the minimum wage went up or something like that. So I'm curious if the panelists could answer, if you had that pot of money and you wanted to create this incentive to work, and the other benefits of the wealth transfer, might you invest it in a different program, say, topping up a low wage or something like that so you could create a stronger incentive to work or have an effect that would be larger than what it is now? Do, I'm sorry, do you mean transferring some of the money that would go to the EITC to raising the federal minimum wage, something like or that? Something or? like that. And, I, and each panelist can respond how they, you know, if they had the whatever, $60 billion dollars, yeah, it just it seems very divorced. If I have a minimum wage job and then I get the money at the very end of the year, the incentive, I don't see that money immediately versus if I'm looking for a job and I see a $7 wage versus a $10 wage, the incentive is much stronger and immediate, I would think. But maybe I'm, maybe the low-wage consumer is sophisticated enough that they see the money down the road and that's an incentive enough. Do you know? 
I don't know the answer, but just thinking through that, um, you know, when we're thinking about $8 an hour to $10 an hour, you have to think about that. That's, that's barely making it, um, being able to afford things. So you're still within that wage where the earned income credit, you know, we look at it also as a savings account. You know, you can look at it as you're putting money into a savings, you're going to get it at a certain point and you're going to save for it. Instant gratification, um, I think, is one of the things that gets a lot of, a lot of people in, in trouble. But you're absolutely right. I mean, but the main objective is that we want to get people trained and skilled with the certifications so they can make higher wages. So preparing our workforce and our skilled workers, as we're talking about um, companies that hire folks, a lot of it is that we have a lot of um, job openings that we don't have the skilled workers to place in those jobs that, that we have that issue. So it's a matter of I think that we have to train our individuals so they can make the higher wages because if we don't get that, the wages are higher. Um, and you have to also look at it, are the employers willing to pay higher wages? Where we know that the EIC is a credit that um, the, the worker earned that money. But you have a great point because you're, you need it every month and you want to have that money. Um, so it, it's a great point, but it's, I don't know how we do that. I mean, I guess my, you know, I think that the most important thing is to wage, raise the wage. Uh, that's, that will give the immediate gratification. That will actually give people the uh, incentive to, uh, the additional incentive to uh, be working and, um, you know, put a lot more money in their pocket than they're getting now. I think that the, I would hate, I wouldn't want to erode the EITC at this point. It's such a successful program. Uh, it's you know helping six and a half million people. It's it's lifting that many out of poverty right now. Uh, so I don't think that there's a, a, a percentage you know, that there's an advantage to reducing the funding there. It's leveraging, right? It's leveraging. Uh, so I think uh, the key question is how can we raise people's wages across the board? Are there any other questions? Thank you so much to each of the panelists. You did a great job. Well, great. I just want to thank you all. I think this has been a great discussion. I learned a lot, um, and I hope you all did too. So thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for your expert managing of the conversation. And please come join us again for our next conversation in the Working in America series. Thank you. And thank you very much. Oh. <laughs> I, the last thing I needed to do was. The proposal I costed out.